So good morning once again. Um, as you can see there on the uh, screens, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts this morning. So for those of you who were with us last week, you may remember that uh, we left the Apostle Paul under arrest uh, by the Romans in Jerusalem after they had rescued him from a Jewish mob. And uh, all that um, sets the context for our reading this morning, uh, which picks up the story. And so I'm going to ask um, Wayna um, if um, she would come up and uh, read for us just now. Thanks, Wayna. Today's reading is from Acts 22, verse 30 to 23, verse 24. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees said that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews found, formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. 
They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at night tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Okay, thank you very much, Wayna. So then, I have always loved some of the pictures of the trains in India, um, like the one that you can see there on the screen. If uh, you thought traveling on the MTR in Hong Kong was bad and was um, stressful, then um, I think um, some of these would be an awful lot worse. And I, I need to say, I've never actually been to India, so I've no uh, idea how accurate um, some of these pictures actually are. I've um, transited through various uh, airports in India on the plane, but uh, I've um, never actually been out uh, in the countryside um, to see how accurate um, some of these pictures actually are. But you can sort of see a picture there of people hanging on every conceivable part of the locomotive and the carriages. Uh, there are people on the roof, uh, there are people clinging on to the edge, there are people crowded everywhere as um, the train um, continues to move forwards. And I was thinking this last week, that this really is a great picture of what we see happening in the book of Acts. Uh, if we imagine the gospel as a train, uh, we see the gospel moving forwards, we see the gospel progressing from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And as the gospel move fo moves forwards, as the gospel makes progress, we see more and more people getting on board with it. Uh, we see Jews and Greeks, men and women, slaves, um, those who aren't slaves, and many different nationalities and ethnicities um, all coming to believe in Jesus Christ, uh, getting on board the gospel train. And really one of the main points of the book of Acts is that it is actually God who is moving the train forwards. It is God's gospel. God is working his plans and purposes out. It is God who equips his people to witness to others through the power of the Spirit. It is even God who we see very clearly in Acts orchestrating individual meetings and so works in people so that they hear the message about Jesus and they respond to it. Remember how the Lord opened Lydia's heart, for instance, to the good news. So God is in control. It is God who is moving the gospel train forwards. But then one question that this, of course, raises for all of us is, well, uh, what role do we play? If the progress of the gospel is all about God, which uh, in this church uh, we must certainly believe it is, then doesn't that kind of diminish or negate the role that we maybe have? Um, if God is the one who orchestrates everything, if he even predestines people according to his will, then uh, what part do we play um, with the progress of the gospel? Well, those are really great questions and the questions that uh, Christians throughout history have often struggled with. And I think our passage this morning actually uh, helps us begin to grasp um, some of the answers to them. In this passage, we see that God is very much in control. God is sovereign. But yet we also see that we have a meaningful part and a meaningful role to play as well. 
So then, I'd uh, like to look at the um, three headings there on your uh, notice sheets this morning, uh, all of them um, to do with God's sovereignty, uh, three lessons for us, and uh, the um, first of them there then is God is sovereign, but yet we still need to evangelise. God is sovereign, but yet we still need to evangelise. I guess uh, some of you here may have heard of the famous um, meeting of... Uh, Baptist ministers in England uh, that took place in the late um, 1700s. Uh, so William Carey, uh, who was actually one of the, one of the uh, very first Protestant missionaries to India, was speaking at that meeting. And he was a young man at the time, and he was speaking about the a great need there was for Christians to be active in missions. And there was an older minister at that meeting, and he um, famously said, young man, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. And really what that older minister was sort of uh, saying at that meeting was that it's God that saves people. Therefore, if God wants people to become Christians, they will. And there is no need at all for us to be involved in that process. That's what he was basically saying. However, one of the things that we learn throughout the book of Acts is that that view is not true. Uh, we see that God is in charge. We see that God is very much sovereign but yet we still need to evangelize. And that's exactly uh, what we see Paul doing both uh, here and also throughout Acts. And so then, the uh, context um, for these uh, first few verses here is that there's been a riot, you might remember from last week, where a Jewish mob was trying to lynch Paul. Uh, Paul has been rescued from the Romans, and now the Roman commander is sort of trying to work out, really, um, what was going on. Why were these Jews so incredibly mad? He's not been able to find out by asking the, the crowd. Uh, everything was just uh, far too chaotic for him to work out what was going on. And so now the Roman commander decides to convene a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was the sort of grand Jewish religious council, uh, so that they can hopefully tell him uh, what the problem with this person Paul is. And so we see a couple of things here about Paul's witness, and the first of them is Paul's integrity. So then in um, verse 1 of our reading, uh, Paul kicks off by telling them that he's always kept his conscience clear before God. He says, I fulfilled my duty uh, to God in all good conscience to this day. And what he basically means there is, I've done nothing wrong. There's no incompatibility between me claiming to be a Jew uh, and believing and preaching about Jesus. So there's actually no incompatibility there at all. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the sort of promises and hopes of Judaism. Ananias, the high priest, well, he probably views this as blasphemy. And so he commands that Paul be struck on the mouth. This uh, chap, Ananias, was known to be uh, violent and greedy. Uh, in fact, one of his contemporaries uh, described him as a great hoarder of wealth, which is not exactly a compliment uh, in a religious leader, uh, a great hoarder of wealth. And then we don't know whether Paul sort of loses his cool or if he decides to rebuke the high priest. But either way, he responds, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So Paul's basically saying Ananias is a hypocrite. 
Those around him say, how dare you insult God's high priest? And then Paul seems to apologize, uh, basically saying, well, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, uh, probably because we know that Paul's eyesight was bad. And so he says, in effect, if I'd realized who he was, then I wouldn't have done it. Uh, I think the point here really that we see is Paul's integrity. Uh, Paul is the one here with a clear conscience. Uh, the high priest, the leader of the Jews, the one who ought to have known a lot better, is the one who um, violates the Old Testament law by commanding that Paul be struck. But yet Paul desires to live in accordance with God's law. He apologizes when he's wrong. Uh, he says God's word says not to speak evil about the leader of God's people. And so the, Paul, the uh, point that we're meant to see here is that uh, Paul is the one who acts with integrity. It's an important point for us, of course, that when we are called on to witness for Christ, that that's not just what we actually speak. It's not just the words that we use that are important, but also who we are, uh, the witness of our lives, for instance. Are we those whose witness has integrity? When we are um, retelling conversations we've had with other people, maybe, uh, do we um, retell them accurately? Um, are we those who are quick to apologize when we do wrong, um, like Paul did here? So then we see Paul's integrity. Uh, then we also see Paul's message. Uh, this brings us on to uh, verse 6 to 8. So we read that then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, are called out in the Sanhedrin. My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So then, on the one hand, I guess uh, Paul is sort of being slightly deliberately crafty here. He knows his audience, and so he basically sort of pulls the pin on a kind of um, theological grenade and uh, basically throws it in to the um, Sanhedrin, knowing full well that half of them believe in the resurrection and the other half don't. And so he says, I'm on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the, the dead. Paul is being um, shrewd here. But I actually think Paul is also doing a lot more than that. Because I think Paul is also getting right to the heart of the Christian message, right to the heart of the gospel that he preached, which is the resurrection of the dead, both uh, Jesus' resurrection in the past and, of course, the Christian's future resurrection as well. Uh, right at the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see this all the way through Acts, and we, we will see it again in the chapters coming up. Uh, Jesus was killed on Good um, Friday, um, he died exactly as the Old Testament had prophesied and predicted as a substitute for God's people. He took our sins and God's anger against us and was laid in a grave. But of course, the message of the gospel does not end there. In fact, if the message of the gospel had have ended there, then we would have no hope at all. The only reason why we have hope is because of the resurrection Jesus rose from the grave, and because Jesus rose from the grave, we know that his sacrificial death for us was successful. We know that Jesus is alive right now, that he hears and answers prayer, that he's able to call uh, rebels and sinners like us into relationship with himself. And we know that one day, if we trust in him, then we will rise with a glorious resurrection body like he did. 
you know, so Paul here is being deliberately shrewd, but yet, and he does, of course, end up dividing the, the court. Uh, one group say, well, we can't see any, any problem um, with this man. Uh, but he's also um, getting them right to the heart of Christianity. Whenever we are witnessing for Jesus, whenever we're taking a stand for Christianity, it's basically the same for us. Uh, the reason we are doing it is actually ultimately because of the hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. We believe Jesus rose physically from the grave, and because Jesus rose physically from the grave, we believe that one day we will also rise with him as well. Those who know him will have glorious resurrection bodies and will live with him forever in the new creation. That uh, is the Christian hope. So I wonder what is your hope this morning? I was discussing with someone this last week how here in Hong Kong we're always encouraged to put our hope in, thing of, in, in the things of this present world, uh, things that are right now, things that are immediate. We're encouraged to hope in a larger flat or more money or more leisure time or better health. But actually what we need to remember if we're Christians is that our ultimate hope is not in any of those things. Our hope is in the resurrection of the dead uh, on the last day. You know, one day your health will fail. One day there will be a problem in your life that the doctors will not be able to resolve. And where will you go on that day? What will you be hoping in? Well, Paul would say, trust in the hope that only Jesus can offer. Hope in the resurrection of the dead. A hope which is based on Jesus' own resurrection. And so we know that Paul rests in God's sovereignty, his control over all. But I hope you notice there that that does not mean that Paul keeps his mouth closed uh, before the Sanhedrin. Rather, he speaks, uh, he defends his own integrity, and he also uh, makes a powerful witness for Christ. However, we need to move on, because we also see here um, God is sovereign, yet we still need encouragement. So I, again, I suppose we might say, well, uh, I know that God is in control. Uh, I believe that God is in control of my life. Um, so um, surely that is all I, I need. I just need that knowledge. I just now need to grit my teeth. I need to really um, knuckle down and just uh, get on with everything myself. But uh, again, I think it's interesting that we see here in this passage um, that that's not true. Uh, it is true that God is in con control, but we see here, I think, that God also wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to know that he is with us, and he even wants us to be reminded uh, regularly that he is the one that is ultimately uh, in control over our lives. So then, um, verse 10, uh, we see that Paul's appearance before the Sanhedrin uh, characteristically uh, ends in chaos. Uh, everyone sort of starts arguing with uh, everybody else and eventually things get so out of hand that uh, once again the commander, it says, is afraid that Paul will actually be torn to pieces by them. And so he ends up uh, taking Paul again back uh, into the uh, Roman barracks for his own safety. And then we read in verse 11 what must have really been a great encouragement to Paul. Uh, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So what an encouragement for Paul. Maybe you can think about the times when someone has uh, come with you to an important meeting uh, or they've stood near you or right next to you when somebody was trying to intimidate you. Um, uh, then uh, multiply that by a hundred 
And you probably have how Paul uh, must have been feeling here. Uh, perhaps you can remember uh, way back when we looked at Acts chapter 18, uh, where there's a sort of um, similar account of uh, Jesus um, standing um, near Paul and encouraging him. And I uh, shared the story on that occasion with a little girl in the North Macedonia who had Down's syndrome, uh, but was being bullied and was called names because of it at school. And then how the president of the whole country had come and walked with her and had held her hand uh, on the way to school. And really just how much that had given her strength and uh, reassurance of the president of the whole country being with her and uh, walking with her to school. Well, I think it must have been exactly the same, uh, if not more so, for the Apostle Paul here. Uh, this actually seems to have been a physical appearance of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the risen Lord Jesus himself it seems, came and, came and stood near Paul and said to him, take courage, um, this is what is going to happen next. Um, I'm letting you know it. Just imagine the great reassurance, the great encouragement that uh, that must have been. Uh, we actually know there was a very similar instance towards the end of Paul's life as well. So this is what Paul shares as he was really uh, approaching his own death um, in 2 Timothy 4. And uh, verse 16 to 18, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, this is uh, speaking about a time when um, Paul was abandoned by everyone, but yet wonderfully, Jesus came and stood with him. Jesus drew near to him and gave him the strength and confidence that he needed, assurance that he would bring him home to his heavenly kingdom. So Jesus' presence was a great encouragement to Paul. Then we also see Jesus' promises as well. So uh, Jesus speaks to Paul, of course, and says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Jesus promises Paul that he would get him to Rome. Um, no, no doubt at this point, Paul must have been just incredibly anxious about the um, future. He must have been thinking, this can't go on day after day. There seems to be little prospect of me even getting out of here alive. Um, never mind me actually getting to Rome. But yet Jesus comes near to Paul and says, take courage as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will also testify in Rome. You will get there um, for my glory. I will make sure that it happens. Why was Rome so vitally important? Well, for one thing, Paul wanted to go to Rome. Uh, we know that from many places in the New Testament. It was Paul's ambition to go to Rome. Uh, Romans 1 verse 10, Paul prayed that he would be able to go to Rome to preach the gospel and we also know that he wanted to go to Rome and then he wanted to go on to Spain um, after that um, where the gospel had never been preached. But anyway, the main reason why Rome is important here and the main reason why Rome is important in the book of Acts is that it sort of symbolizes and represents the ends of the earth. Remember that the whole theme of the book of Acts is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth. Uh, the book of Acts sort of uh, begins in sort of Jesus' death and uh, uh, resurrection. And that's kind of where the gospel began, if you like. But now the gospel needs to go to Rome. 
You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Rome uh, represented very much the ends of the, the earth, which is uh, why the book of Acts ends there. And so Jesus promises Paul, you're not going to end your days in Jerusalem. Um, my gospel will make progress. You will get to, to, to Rome. And uh, that must have been a great encouragement uh, for Paul. As um, commentator John Stott comments in this moment of discouragement, Jesus comforted him with the straightforward promise that as he had borne witness to him in Jerusalem, so he must also bear witness to him in Rome. It would be hard to exaggerate the calm courage which this assurance must have brought to Paul during his further trials, his two years imprisonment, and his hazardous voyage to Rome. I think uh, John Stott's exactly right. How many of us need that calm courage that comes from God? Of course, Jesus may not encourage us with a sort of a post-resurrection physical appearance uh, in exactly the same way that, that he did with Paul. But yet, you know, we can still know um, Jesus' presence with us and we can still know Jesus' promises that God's plans and purposes for us can never be thwarted. Nothing can happen to us apart from God's will. And so maybe if there's one specific application for us this morning, it's, 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 it, it is this, that God knows when we need special help and encouragement, and he is able to bring that to us. As I've said before, I think it's significant here that Jesus appeared to Paul when Paul was probably at his lowest ebb. Uh, he'd been beaten up uh, multiple times in the past couple of days. He'd faced hostile crowds. He'd faced hostile courts. Uh, it seems that he was alone and he'd almost been flogged and then only rescued at the last minute. And, and Paul must have wondered, is each of these days are going to be my last? But yet Jesus draws near to him and encourages him. And Jesus also draws near to us to encourage us when we need it. God knows those times when we need him most. He knows those times when uh, we need him to draw near to us in order to, to keep going. We need that glimpse of Jesus' love and Jesus' encouragement um, to keep going. How does Jesus encourage us? Well, one, one way is through his spirit. His spirit lives within us if we're Christians and assures us that we belong to Jesus and he is with us. Another way is uh, through Jesus' promises. Uh, we can remember the great promises of God's word that assure us that he is with us and that uh, God is in control and he knows what he's doing and that nothing can happen to us apart from his will. Uh, we might think of a great promise, for instance, like uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which assures us that whatever is happening to us, uh, that God is using that as part of his plan, uh, even if we are really struggling with it um, right now. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or we might think of the great promise in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, that's who we are, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to, to do. And do you ever think your life is worthless? Well, this verse assures us that God has prepared good works in advance for you to do so we need to keep on going we need to find out what those good works are uh, as God begins to make them clear to us then so we've seen that Jesus encourages us um, through his spirit 
through his promises. And we also need to remember, of course, that Jesus encourages us through his people. Uh, why is it important to be a member of a local church? Why is it important to meet up with other Christians one-to-one or be part of a small group or men's or women's group, maybe? Well, one reason is because we need other Christians to encourage us. Uh, They can get alongside us. They can give us the strength to keep going when we are struggling. They can be channels of God's love and help and care to us. They can remind us that God really is in control of what is going on in our lives. Uh, That's what Paul needed here, of course. He needed uh, Jesus to reassure him that he really was in control and that he would one day get to Rome, that uh, his gospel um, would continue to spread. And so we see that God is sovereign, uh, but yet we still need encouragement. However, we also need to move on and look at our last point, which is that God is sovereign, but yet we still need to be active. And you see this really in the rest of our passage from chapter 23, verse 12, uh, all the way down to verse um, 35. And this is a really great story. It sort of reads a little bit like a movie script, um, um, really, with all the um, intrigue and all the sort of different conversations and everything. It, it, It is a really great adventure story. But what we really have here is the sort of outworking of verse 11. So remember in verse 11 that we just looked at, that Jesus tells Paul that he is sovereign and that he will get him to Rome no matter what. And now in um, verse 12 to 35, we sort of see how this works out in practice. And again, it's this sort of combination of Paul knew that God had promised that he would get to Rome, but yet Paul still needed, and others still needed to be active agents as well. So it's this sort of combination of um, divine sovereignty, but also human responsibility that we see here in uh, microcosm and that uh, we would expect uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, the gospel train, if you like, is moving forwards, but yet we still have a role to play. And we see this very clearly here. So first of all, we see an evil plan. So by now, of course, the Jews were getting really, really frustrated. Uh, they had plan A, which was to um, lynch Paul, but uh, that didn't actually work uh, because he got sort of rescued by the Romans. Uh, so plan A didn't work. So they were then on to plan B. Uh, which is to have Paul condemned at the um, Sanhedrin, uh, basically. But that didn't work either, because the kind of whole thing uh, ended in, in chaos. So plan A has not, has not worked, plan B has not worked, so now we're getting a little bit desperate, and we have plan C. And plan C is to basically ambush Paul in the narrow streets of Jerusalem and murder him. And so we pick up the story here in verse 12 to 15. So we read that the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders, so they were all involved, and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin uh, petitioned the the Roman commander uh, to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So we have an evil plan. It's actually meant to be ironic, the way it's given to us. They make an oath to God, but yet their oath actually actually involves breaking at least two of God's laws. Uh, They plan to lie and kill, um, which are both actually against the Ten Commandments. 
Um, and so the point is here, again, that Paul is innocent. Paul's the one that's innocent, whereas the religious authorities who are trying to kill Paul, uh, those are the ones uh, who are actually guilty. And then I think we can also see here just how costly this mission was going to actually be to the Jews. Uh, we really hope that uh, in the end, their oath not to uh, eat or drink until they'd killed Paul was actually an, an oath that uh, they ended up breaking, right? And I think there was some sort of a uh, mechanism for doing that. But presumably, these Jews um, knew that in order to kill Paul on the way to the Sanhedrin, they'd need to overpower the Roman legionaries that Paul was actually traveling with. And the thing about Roman legionaries is they probably knew what they, they were, were doing um, when it comes to using a shield and sword and other things. And so the chances are that some of these Jews would have been killed as well. Really, the point is that they hate Paul so much that they're willing to give up their lives uh, to actually get rid of him. So interestingly, it reminds us just uh, how irrational and how extreme some hostility to the gospel uh, can actually be. But then we also have an amazing escape. And so uh, once again, you see God's sovereignty. Verse 16 tells us that Paul's nephew uh, hears of the plot, which shows that their um, security must have been a little bit lax. Uh, then Paul's nephew goes to tell Paul. Paul calls in the centurion and tells him to take the boy to the Roman commander. The Roman commander listens to him and then orders a detachment of troops. There's actually about half the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. Uh, probably about half the Roman garrison in Jerusalem was to accompany Paul um, to the Roman go governor in Caesarea. Uh, you can see from the map there just where Caesarea is. So it's on the coast, about um, 60 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, we've uh, encountered Caesarea before in Acts, and, and um, Caesarea was the seat of the Roman governor, a man at this time called Antonius um, Felix. And if you can hold that thought there, because we will be learning more and we'll be meeting uh, Antonius Felix um, next week. However, the point I want to make here is that God is protecting Paul. Jesus had promised to get Paul to Rome, and now we see how he will do it. Um, through the Romans. The Jews think that they can oppose God, but yet God foils their plans and rescues Paul. And by the end of the chapter, Paul is where? Well, he's one step closer towards Rome. He's at um, Caesarea. If you like, the gospel train has moved forwards one more station along the line. Uh, but I think we also see here that God's people need to be active. So it's true that God is sovereign. He's working everything out, but yet we still need to be active. And so we see this in Paul's nephew. I mean, I guess when Paul's nephew heard of this plot, he could have just said, great, um, let's just sit back and watch and see how God is going to get Paul to Rome and, and not bother doing anything. But he doesn't. Rather, he takes action and he goes and tells Paul. Um, then we also see Paul. Uh, when Paul heard of the, the plot, he could have said, well, God, Jesus has promised me, Jesus has stood right here, and Jesus has promised me personally that he's going to get me to Rome. And so I'm just going to sit back here and uh, wait for the whole thing to uh, happen. Let go and let God. Uh, that's my motto. I wonder how God will actually do it. Maybe with an angel, maybe with an earthquake uh, like he has done previously. But of course, Paul doesn't. Uh, Paul knows that Jesus has promised to get him to Rome, but yet notice that Paul still takes action. Uh, Paul calls the centurion over and he sends the boy to the commander. I'm sure you can see my point, that God is sovereign and working everything out, 
yet God's people still need to be active. Of course, there's an element of mystery going on here. We aren't told in the Bible exactly how these two things fit together. But we are told that God is 100% sovereign, and we need to believe in that, and that we are 100% responsible to act, and therefore can't just sit back and uh, not bother doing anything. So I wonder, if you're a Christian this morning, have you got this straight in your head when it comes to evangelism, is it true that there is an elect who have been chosen by God from before the beginning of time? Well, yes. But is it also true that we need to witness and tell people the gospel? Well, yes, it is. Or when it comes to our Christian growth, is it true that God is the one who makes us grow? Well, yes, of course, none of us can grow as Christians on our own. But is it also true that we need to use spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading the Bible and attending church regularly to, to grow? Well, yes, of course, it is. And there's actually many, many other examples that we could give for our Christian lives as well. And those of you in uh, home groups will have an uh, opportunity to be um, thinking about this during the course of next week. When it comes to missions... Is it true that God has promised that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and that uh, each tribe and language and people will come to hear the good news? Well, yes, it is. That's true. But is it also true that we need to pray for those people who are unreached and we need to give and we need to send missionaries and we need to be informed about it? Well, yes, it is. And so really the question that some of us may need to think through here is, is on what side of this equation do we fall our passage this morning, you see, says that we need to be holding on to them both with equal measure. We need to hold on to both. The solution here is not to sort of try and have a uh, mushy compromise in the middle. The solution is to hold on to both with equal measure. We need to hold on to both God's sovereignty, 100%, and also human responsibility, 100%, if we are to lead a healthy, well-balanced Christian life. We can't just overbalance on God's sovereignty and not do anything. That would be to go against scripture. But neither can we overbalance on human responsibility and be so human-centered uh, that we think it is all about us and we can sort of uh, lose sight of God. Uh, on the other hand, is I think uh, one of Paul's points in the passage like this is that we actually see both God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together uh, in perfect harmony. God is sovereign, yet we still need to evangelize. God is sovereign, yet we still need encouragement. And God is sovereign, but yet we still need to be active. And so we see the gospel train moving forwards. In this passage, God uses Paul's witness. He uses hostile Jews. He even uses pagan Romans who, quite frankly, don't even really care what's going on. Uh, to move the gospel train down the track. And for all of us this morning, uh, this should give us great confidence as well. As we look at our own world, we see many people without Christ, we see governments opposed to God, we see pandemics, we see divisions in the church, we see wars, we see earthquakes, we see natural disasters, and it's easy to wonder what is going on. Is God really in control? Well, our passage this morning in the book of Acts would assure us that God is in control. The gospel train continues to advance, 
and we need to get on board if we've not already done so. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. We give thanks that you are indeed sovereign over all things. Yet we also give thanks that we need to be active and that you draw near to us to encourage us. You use us and you want to use us as your witnesses. And so we pray that we might be those who trust in you, help us to rest in you. But yet we also pray that we might be those who are active, especially in the areas of Christian growth and um, sharing our faith um, like Paul was here. And uh, we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.